0: What's going on, guys? Welcome back to The Control Room. I'm your host, Esrael Johannes, and this is the first episode of 2024, the 11th episode of season one. Thanks for listening and watching all the way up until this point. Now, for this episode, obviously, the top topics will be the Mavericks, the Pelicans and the Thunder for the Mavs. They went on a rough stretch of one in three in the four games following Christmas Day, but they start off with Portland, two games against Portland and Minnesota to, uh, to tip off their seven-game homestand, which is the longest they have this season. For the Pelicans, they rip four straight wins, which ties their longest winning streak of the season. And they have the Los Angeles Clippers on the way. For the Thunder, they beat the Boston Celtics, the best team in the NBA, en route to five straight wins. That got snapped against Atlanta on their first game of their road trip. But we are going to look at OKC's big three of SGA, Chet, and J Dub. First off, let's start with the Mavs and break down that rough stretch entering the homestand. This was recorded, this is being recorded on Thursday, January 4th in the evening. So the Mavs are not playing tonight. There are only two teams, or excuse me, two games, four teams playing as of right now. From December 27th to January 2nd, the Mavs' offensive rating in those games, according to Sport Radar, is 107.3, which is kind of low. The Mavs' defensive rating was 114.6, so their net rating was negative 7.3, which is the eighth worst in the NBA in that span. Now, Sport Radar and NBA.com give two different numbers when it comes to offensive and defensive and net rating. So, I put both in here. Those were the sport radar numbers. These will be the NBA numbers. The Mavs' offensive rating in those four games was set at 109.4, according to NBA.com. The defensive rating, 118.8. So, their net rating was negative 9.4, which is the fifth worst in the NBA in that span. That seems more logical, just a little bit more logical, considering just how poorly those four games went for the Mavs. So the first of those four, the Cavaliers at the Mavs, the Mavs actually had a 20-point lead in this game. Luka scored 20 points in the first quarter alone. He finished with 39 points. So where the Mavs blew this 20-point lead, the Cavs were without Donovan Mitchell, Darius Garland, and Evan Mobley. This was the largest blown lead loss this season for the Mavs. The third double-digit blown lead loss this season, meaning they had a lead of 10 or more at any point in the game and then lost the game. But fatigue and missed shots seem to be factors in this game, although it's not what people want to hear when you're up 20. Cleveland's defense was excellent in the second half. That's really what turned the game around for them. So in the second half, the three-point disparity for Cleveland and Dallas, Cleveland... Shot 8 of 20, 40% from three. Dallas only 4 of 16, 25% from three. The free throw disparity was a little evident in this half as well. 11 of 15, 73.3% from the free throw line for Cleveland. For Dallas, only 5 of nine. So although they missed four shots on either side, four free throws on either side, because of the volume for Cleveland, it helped them out a little bit more compared to Dallas. And then assists, Cleveland out-assisted Dallas in the second half, 16-10. Had that been in the first half and then that continued through the rest of the game, that would have been a 32-20 to advantage in assists. And you don't want to be on the wrong end of that. The bench points for Cleveland was 31 because of Karis LeVert scoring 21 in the second half. Dallas only had 8. So Karis LeVert outscored the entire Dallas bench in the second half. Almost three times over. Turnovers were pretty even. Cleveland had six. Dallas had seven. However, Cleveland capitalized on those turnovers by scoring nine points off turnovers compared to Dallas's two. And then in the fourth quarter, it got just a little bit worse. Cleveland shot three of six from three, 50%. Dallas only shot two of seven, 28.6% from three. That is not their calling card. You would say they went ice cold. And the free throw disparity was outrageous in the fourth quarter. Cleveland shot 8 of 12, 66.7%, and Dallas 0 for 1. Now, there was a legitimate argument that Luka should have drawn a foul on that layup that could have gotten the the game within, I believe it was 1, and there was no foul called, and so he turned around and started yelling at a ref, and then that that opened the door for an outlet pass to go to one of the Cleveland players I was sitting on the wing defensively. And at that point, that's when Luka recognized, I need to start playing defense. But really, yes, the calls didn't really go the Mavs' way. At the end of the day, when you are trying to, when you're not trying to blow that big of a lead, you want to, if you're Luka Doncic, get back and try to affect the next play rather than Try to, rather than trying to alter the ref's decision that they've already made. It's not like they're going to say, ah, oh, yeah, Luca, you're right, we'll call a foul now. Like, it's not going to happen, especially when you're within a minute to go in the game. That's been something that's, ta- that's been talked about about Luka Doncic throughout his career, especially as of late in the last few seasons, and that's why he's been dealing with technical foul trouble throughout seasons. So, for him, I don't want to keep seeing this because it's showing that he's not improving in that area. And as a leader of the team, you have to be better than that because you don't want it to spill across other players on the team and then have that be the culture. At some point, you're just going to have to overcome what what hand you're being dealt. Sometimes it's going to be unfair. You're a 6'8 guard. You're not going to get everything. Just ask LeBron. But that's one game in isolation. It's not, let's not harp on it for so long. we got to move on to the next game. Maz versus Timberwolves. Second night of a back-to-back, including travel. So really, part of the frustration could be that Luka knows he's going through a quad injury and has to give his all in this Cleveland game because this Minnesota game is going to be very difficult if he doesn't play. And sure enough, he did not play... And neither did Kyrie. And the Mavs defense was almost non-existent when it came to Anthony Edwards. It's not like they didn't try. It's just that he was that good. The Timberwolves shot 7 of 10 from 3 in the first quarter alone. This is really where they made that separation. And then Anthony Edwards had 14 points in the first quarter, finished with a season high 44 points. And that ties the third most points in his career. The Mavs did keep it close in the second half without Luka and Kyrie, so give them credit for overcoming the the situation. They were even able to get it designated as a clutch game, but they couldn't really get it close enough to overtake the lead in the final minutes. But you do love the Mavs fight with the rest of those guys, and when everyone's clicking on all cylinders throughout the entirety of a game, this team is very tough to stop. That leads to the Mavs Warriors game in San Francisco where the Mavs shot 49 of 88 from the floor. That's 55.7%. That 55.7% field goal percentage is their best this season. They shot 33 of 48 from two, which is 68.8%. And that's their second best two-point field goal percentage this season. The Mavs' six best two-point shooting games this season all came in December. So not only was Luka having a great December, the Mavs were having a great December, especially from inside. From three, they shot 16 of 40, that's 40%, at a 45.5% three-point rate, which is a little bit below their average, right around their average. But they found the balance between scoring well inside, scoring well outside, and the Warriors couldn't stop them. And then from the free throw line, they shot 18 of 22. It's the 12th game this season shooting 80% or better from the free throw line. The ninth game shooting 80% from the free throw line in December alone. So they're getting better at free throw shooting, right? Like that, that's that been one of the caveats of this team, especially last year, considering they were one of the worst teams in free throw percentage. Despite having so many attempts, they were top five in free throw attempts last season. If not, top three, top two, maybe leading the league. For them to be more efficient from the free throw line solves one of the issues that was plaguing them last year. And they can now, if these percentages hold throughout the rest of the season, they can then address the next thing that may be stopping them in the miscellaneous categories and so on and so forth. So it's just good to see that they're being more efficient from the free throw line. As these games have gone on, this game was also designated as a clutch game because Chris Paul hit a 26-foot three-pointer to cut the Mavs' lead to 119-114 with 247 remaining. However, the Warriors never got it any closer than that. As of that result, the Mavs are now 11-5 in clutch games this season. That ties the fourth best 16-game start in the clutch in franchise history since the play-by-play era started tracking in 1996-1997. Moving on to Mavs-Jazz. The last time the Mavs played the Jazz, it was at home, and they blew Utah out by 50. Let's just say that didn't happen twice. Not a single Maverick scored 20 points in this game. The Mavs are now 0-3 this season when no Maverick scores 20 or more in a game. They allowed 49 of 96, which was 51%. 96 attempts is already a lot. From two, they allowed 37 of 52. That's 71.2%, which is extremely high even from inside the arc. And then from the free throw line, the Jazz shot 17 of 18. It's 94.4%. So they didn't hurt themselves at the line, for sure. The Mavs also allowed 66 paint points, and are now 4-7 and this season when allowing 60 or more in the paint. So that becomes another area of concern when it comes to paint defense. you got to shore up the paint so that you don't let easy buckets get right by you. But on top of all that, they allowed Jordan Clarkson to make history. Jordan Clarkson had 20 points, 10 rebounds, and 11 assists, which makes this the first regular season triple-double by a Jazz player since February 13th, 2008. It's been a long time. And, of course, it happened later in the fourth quarter. At that point, superstars weren't playing anymore. Kyrie actually returned in this game. But, things started to go south for the Mavs after Dante Exum tried to come back from his injury, but he eventually sat and then nothing seemed to work so yeah it was an 87 point turnaround between those two games where the jazz lost by 50 and then won by 37 wasn't fun so then after those road games are over that now leads into this seven game homestand for the mavericks this is the longest homestand of the season And it is tied third longest of all homestands in franchise history. So in the first game of this homestand, the Mavs have the Portland Trailblazers. And in this game, DeAndre Ayton did not play. So he has now missed two of three games against Dallas. Dante Exum also out for this game. But Luka and Kyrie, they came to play. Luka dropped 41 On 13 of 21 shootings, 61.9%. 4 of 7 from 3, 57.1%. Shot 11 of 14 from the free throw line, 78.6%. And added 6 rebounds, 5 assists, and a steal. He had 30 points in the first half. What? (laughs) He had... had 30 in the first half again. Like, this is not his first time. This is the seventh time in his career. Scoring 40 points through three quarters. And I know multiple times he's scored 30 and a half. I didn't look up how many times he's done it this season, but I have watched Luka drop 30 and a half. Kyrie Irving added 29 points, 10 of 19 shooting, 52.6%. 4 of 8 from 3, 50%. And nine rebounds, five assists, and two steals. Had 22 points in the first half. This is only the third time since Kyrie was traded from the Brooklyn Nets to the Dallas Mavericks back in February of 2023 that Luka and Kyrie each had 20 points in the first half. So kind of rare that this happened. Tim Hardaway Jr., the resident sixth man off the bench, scored 14 points on 5-of-10 shooting Two of five from three and added three rebounds. So to see him, he also was perfect from the free throw line, even though I think it was two for two. For him to be efficient, scoring double figures, adding some bench power to the way that Luca and Kyrie are playing is a recipe for success for the Mavericks. The Mavericks as a whole shot 42 of 84, 50%, 13 of 30 from three, 43.3%. Now 30 three-point attempts is kind of low for a team that lives and dies by the three, or wants to live and die by the three. I'll get to that in a second, but first I want to mention that they shot 29 of 41 from the free throw line, 70.7%. Not exactly what we saw in the game that I mentioned prior, where they shot over 80%. So, this is one of those games where it's like, maybe it didn't really matter that much, but I want to see consistency from the free throw line. I do. It matters, especially as we get closer to the end of the season and into the playoffs. Now, the 33-point attempts on 84 field goal attempts registered their three-point rate at a season low of 35.7%. That's like Chicago Bulls territory. We don't see the Mavericks shoot that few three-pointers without good reason. However, there was good reason. Because DeAndre Ayton was not on the floor, just like the last time they played Portland, the paint was pretty much open to attack. So they scored 52 paint points. 32 of them came in the first half, which ties the third most in any half this season. The Mavs are 13-4 and four this season when scoring 50 or more paint points in a game recipe for success. It's like I say this every week, but I digress. Moving on to fast break points, they scored 28 fast break points. That's the third most this season and the Mavs are 12 and 4 this season, 12 and 4 when scoring 15 or more fast break points. They also scored 27 points off turnovers. Now, let's say they force a turnover, grab the ball, Chucked it up the court and then scored a layup that would register as two fast break points and two points off turnovers on the same possession. It's not exactly. It doesn't mean that the 28 fast break points are separate from the 27 points off turnovers. However, having large numbers in those categories will spell success for the Mavericks more so than defeat. So they're 27 points off turnovers. 21 of them came in the first half. That's the most points off turnovers in any half this season, and it ties the third most points off turnovers in a half for the Mavericks since 2018-2019. And when the Mavs scored 20 or more points off turnovers in any half since 2018-2019, they're eight and two. Eight and two. So just something to look out for. And the reason why I say it's something to look out for, one, obviously you want to replicate it, but you can't do that with every team. It's because they have a rematch with Portland on Friday. And if DeAndre Ayton isn't available to play, well, this is going to be the same recipe, isn't it? You just attack the paint, take advantage. You don't need to shoot as many threes. Maybe be more efficient from the free throw line You get another blowout. And what better way to start a homestand than to have two straight wins, right? So, yes, this was a successful game for the Mavs. They did win this game by a lot, by 29. And now they'll play Portland again on Friday. And following that will be Minnesota, who they lost by 8-2 without Luka and Kyrie. However, without Derek Lively II, you're going to have to find other ways to limit Rudy Gobert. But potentially get him in foul trouble. It's difficult trying to get him in the pick and roll when you have Anthony Edwards and Carl anthony Towns, and Rudy Gobert, and Nas Reed, and Kyle Anderson. It's very difficult to single out Rudy and get him one-on-one in the pick and roll. But if they can draw more fouls on Rudy Gobert, as the Pelicans did in their matchup, which I will get into in the next segment, that may open the door for the Mavs to Counteract what Anthony Edwards is doing to them on Minnesota's offensive end, as well as limiting Carl Anthony Towns, because if they both go off, you're kind of in trouble. But that's for another day. So we will transition to the Pelicans and the Thunder and break down their week 10s. That's coming up next. Okay, let's break down the Pelicans' win streak of four games. The first of the four, December 28th versus the Utah Jazz, was a 112-105 win, followed by a New Year's Eve win against the Los Angeles Lakers, 129-109. Then they beat Brooklyn on January 2nd, 112-85. And then, on the second night of a back-to-back, they beat Minnesota. 117 to 106. These are, that win was probably the most impressive of the four, which that's the one that we're going to break down in just a moment. But I want to bring up these ratings. At the top of the show, I talked about the Mavs' offensive and defensive and net ratings through their rough stretch of one and three right after Christmas. For the Pelicans' four-game stretch, their numbers are through the roof. And these are all coming from NBA.com, just so you know where I'm getting these. During their tied season best four-game win streak since December 28th, their offensive rating is 123.4. That's seventh in the NBA, all right? Their defensive rating, 105.7. That's the best in the NBA in that span. And so their net rating is 17.6 which is first in the NBA. If you don't include that Minnesota game where they had a big lead, but Minnesota was able to get the margin back to 11 before the buzzer went final, the Pelicans entered that game with a 19.5 net rating, which was also first in the NBA at that time. So for these numbers to be that astronomically good, mean that the Pelicans are one of the best teams in the NBA in the last week. Is it sustainable? Yes, because all it takes is for this team to be healthy and to be clicking on all cylinders. So yeah, they may go on some rough stretches when it comes to shooting, or maybe they might get a little lackadaisical on defense, but for the most part, if this team continues playing like this, they will be in the top four in the West. This is what we expected of the Pelicans. They've now cracked the top six. They're leading the Southwest division, and they can create Issues for Denver. They've already shown it against Minnesota. If they play like this against Oklahoma City, I mean it's going to be a battle to the end between Shea Gilders Alexander and Zion Williamson. But the West, although Minnesota and Oklahoma City look like the top two and the favorites to come out of the West, New Orleans is just knocking on the door. Of course, the Clippers have something to say about that, but the Pelicans are knocking on the door as long as they keep this going. And this time last year, Zion hurt his hamstring and then was out the rest of the season. The fact that he's still on the, on the court playing well and positively impacting his team means that if he can sustain this all the way through, we're about to see a Pell's team we've never seen before. So let's break down this very impressive win at Minnesota on January 3rd. It was the second night of a back-to-back and I want to give a little bit more detail as to how this, how travel affected this. Because they had played at home against Brooklyn, they had to fly from New Orleans to Minnesota, and they didn't land until 3 in the morning. Now, when we do these shows, especially Pelicans Live in the pregame, we do talk to Antonio Daniels who, and, and Jen Hale, and they fly with the team. They're in the arenas that the Pelicans play at. So they are also dealing with the same travel issues that the pelicans do so finding out that they didn't land in minneapolis until 3 a.m Man, the, all those players are probably rocked out of their routine somehow they found a way to limit rudy gobert with foul trouble because he ended up with four fouls in this game and that got canceled out because of jonas valanciunas's five fouls so without big men playing a factor in this game that then led to Carl Anthony Towns trying to come up for the lack of Rudy Gobert's production. And we ran a graphic on Pelicans Live in the post game showing Carl Anthony Towns' first two games against the Pelicans and then his last two games against the Pelicans. They've now evened up the season series at 2-2. Noticeably, Zion did not play in those first two games, but he played in the last two. So Carl Anthony Towns in the first two games against the Pelicans this season scored a total of 52 points, a total of 19 of 23 shooting from the floor and six of seven from three. But in the last two games, right, compare those two versus these two, 39 points on 13 of 30 shooting, one of seven from three. Obviously, the Pelicans defense stepped up And Zion being on the floor created an impact for sure. Anthony Edwards still plays like Anthony Edwards. He had 35 points on 11 of 22 shooting, 50%. 4 of 7 from 3, 57.1%. 9 of 10 from the free throw line. Yes, math says that's 90%. And then 4 rebounds and 5 assists. So although Anthony Edwards was able to keep his hot scoring going. Being able to limit Carl Anthony Towns and Rudy Gobert played a big factor in the Pelicans getting out in front and pulling off a win that maybe not a lot of people saw coming. One thing that we mentioned from time to time is how well the James Brego offense moves the ball. In this game, the Pelicans had 30 assists, which is the third most assist by a Timberwolves opponent this season. Why does that matter? Teams are 3-0 this season against the Timberwolves when recording 30 or more assists. So that might be another recipe for success. If you can move the ball against this Timberwolves team, you have a better shot at winning. Because, you know, 25, 27, that's actually not going to get it done. The Timberwolves have won games. They they actually beat the Mavericks. In this most recent game when the Mavs had 29 assists, which is actually kind of high for the Mavericks. So if you can crack 30, then that helps you out more so than if you had less. So let's say you got to 27. If you, as a team, record 27 or more assists, then those teams are 6-6 and this season against the Timberwolves. And the reason I say 27 assists is because the NBA average for assists per game is 26.4. Now, when I bring up assists for the Pelicans, why it started becoming more of a talking point? Of course, the more that you work with the talent, the more you recognize their tendencies. And if you know their backgrounds, then you realize where they're coming from and how they're able to break down the game. And so I want to mention briefly how Madison Hawk, our Pelicans live analyst, likes to bring up assists, especially on the final stats, right? So when she played in college, she was a D1 guard. And so as a guard, naturally you're thinking of facilitating the ball. And she knows that the ball moves faster than any player. She's lived it. So when you... When you have that many assists, when the ball is moving, when you're getting more open shots, that leads to a more successful offense. And by Willie Green establishing James Brego as the man who's creating this offensive system that's revolutionizing the Pelicans, if that's one of the main points that gets through to the team, you need to assist the ball more, meaning you got to pass the ball more, then That's going to be reflected in the assist numbers. Obviously, assists are only recorded when a field goal is made off of a pass. So the more of those that you have, the more that you're showing the team is really sharing the ball and it's less isolation heavy, which would be in Zion's case, if he were to take the ball from all the way up the court and then hang on to it the whole time, just go downhill, that'd be more of an isolation play, which can be appropriate at times. But the team as a whole is more successful when they move the ball around. So as I was building the final stats for this show, I had an operator with me. And as I was going through the categories that I wanted with him, that's when it started to click in my head because I actually did not talk to Madison about putting assists on the final stats. I didn't talk to my producer about putting assists on the final stats. It just came to me after I had worked with Madison for this many games that, you know, considering the Pelicans have as many assists as they do, And knowing that it's one of the talking points that she will harp on because it's very important for the success of the Pelicans. That's when it started to click for me where I'm like, you know what? Let's just put assists on there and then see where it goes. Because if I put it there, I know she'll talk about it. I put it there, we put it there, and she talked about it. And it led to another package where we showed how well the Pelicans were moving the ball. And, of course, the stats that I brought up about them recording 30 assists and how, well, how successful teams are when you have 30 assists against the Timberwolves, it all plays a part in a cohesive show. And the more that I work with people like Madison, the more that I work with the talent that we have across all our teams, the easier it'll be for me to pick up on those tendencies and then I can actually display it in a way that is even more comfortable for them so that they can make analysis in ways that I haven't heard before, which is honestly the things that I want to hear. So, for the Pelicans, who do they have next? They have the hot LA Clippers. James Harden is showing he's a system. It's going to be difficult to stop this train, especially if they're clicking on all cylinders as they have. The Thunder found a way to stop them. However, it's going to take all of the Pelicans to take down James Harden and Kawhi Leonard and Paul George and Russell Westbrook, and the rest of that crew. They are up to the challenge, especially because the game will be at the Smoothie King Center in New Orleans before the Pelicans go back on the road. Now, let's transition to the Oklahoma City Thunder. The Thunder went on a five-game win streak. They did lose in Atlanta. And that happened to be the longest active win streak entering January 3rd. I will briefly mention what happened in Atlanta, but first I want to talk about what happened with the Boston Celtics. So in that Celtics-Thunder game, the Thunder outshot the Celtics in both, two-point, not both, in two-point percentage, three-point percentage. They had one more assist than the Celtics. Let me just break down these numbers real quick. From two, the Thunder shot 58.8% to Boston's 51.9%. From three, OKC shot 45% to Boston's 37.5%. The three-point rate for OKC was actually a little bit higher than I expected at 44%. For Boston, it was a little bit lower than expected, 43.5%. OKC had 34 assists. Boston had 33 assists. So just like the Pelicans that I just mentioned, these two teams were really moving the ball exceptionally well. And then in the miscellaneous categories, OKC had a 50 to 46 advantage in in the paint. Both teams scored 15 fast break points. And then OKC only had 16 points off turnovers to Boston's 18. And then both teams had seven steals and 10 blocks. I don't know how often that number is identical. Now, let's really look at the big three, right? SGA, Chet, Chet. J-Dub. Obviously, it's not just them three that helped propel the Thunder to a win against the Celtics, but these three were the three of the most important. So SGA had 36 points on 14 of 22 shooting, 3 of 5 from 3. He doesn't shoot the 3 that often. So the fact that he was able to get 60% from beyond the arc is impressive. He did shoot 5 of 8 from the free throw line, which is not, not something that we see very often. He is one of the best free throw shooters in the game. So that To me, it is an anomaly. Six rebounds, seven assists, and a steal were added to that stat line. He now has 24 games this season with 30 plus points, which ties the most in the NBA with Luka Doncic, and he led the league last season with 45 30 point games. Chet Holmgren added 14 points on five of nine shooting, also shot three of five from three, and then added three rebounds, seven assists, and he had four blocks. Now, this is the ninth game this season with four or more blocks that ties the fourth most in the NBA across all players. And it's second most among rookies behind only Victor J Dub Jalen Williams scored 16 points on six of nine shooting two of two from, from three added three steals and two blocks. And he is still scored in double figures in all but one game. He's played this season. He missed three due to injury. Scored five points in one game, and outside of that, he scored more at least 10. Th- this kid is unstoppable. I think, I think he should be the front runner for most improved player of the year. That, that to me, I don't know who else can be ahead of him as of right now. Obviously, we'll let the we'll let the players dictate that as the season goes along, but he is my. Frontrunner for MIP. Now, I do want to bring up two other players. One of them, I'm going to acknowledge something. So Josh Giddy. of course, we know about the investigation. There's, There's a reason that people in the media aren't talking about it as much, and it's because it hasn't been closed. That investigation is not closed, and so all the facts are not laid out. And if a journalist were to speak out on it early... And then find out they were wrong. Well, that's very hard to walk back because they've already said something about it on record without getting all of the facts. So the journalistic integrity side of it all is that they have to, as a journalist, wait for everything to finish, then speak on it. And for us, that's what we have to do as well especially because the Thunder are still playing him. So with that known, with that being known, let's look at how he played on Tuesday against the Celtics. He scored a season-high 23 points on 8 of 14 shooting, 4 of 7 from 3, with 8 rebounds and 6 assists. And Isaiah Joe also scored 10 points on 4 of 5 shooting, 2 of 3 from 3, with 3 rebounds. Now, before I move on to how they played against how the Thunder played against Atlanta, I will mention: yes, with the Giddy investigation, it does seem a little odd. Not a little; it does seem very odd. But the most comments that will be made will be made after the investigation is over, because that's when everything is going to be set in stone. We know whatever we know the situation, but that just can't be addressed now. As journalists. So let's move on to the game against the Atlanta Hawks. The Thunder arrived in Atlanta at 4 a.m. and then played the Hawks on the second night of a back-to-back. And somehow they almost overcame a 21-point deficit. Isaiah Joe happened to miss a left corner three that would have tied the game and send it to overtime. OKC still shot surprisingly well with 54.9% shooting from the floor, 58.2% from two, 50% from three, and they scored 29 fast break points. I don't know how, I don't care how young you are. I don't know how you're able to, when you're stuck to a routine, how you're able to land in a city at 4 a.m., have to play later that night, and still score this many points on the fast break. That, to me, is impressive. So, shout out to those guys for almost stealing one in Atlanta. I'm sure they're going to be well-rested as they visit Brooklyn, Washington, and Miami. That Miami game is going to be very interesting because Miami's defense is predicated on forcing turnovers. And so, if the Thunder can clean up the turnovers in that specific game, they have a great shot at winning. But if Miami is able to force a lot of turnovers on them, they are a young team, they've They have found ways to to overcome situations where they've given up a lot of turnovers. But that's something that should be on the scouting report. I know Coach Mark Dagnall is going to make it apparent. They're going to try to turn the ball over on you. So the expectation is the thunder win. However, Miami has proven people wrong, especially having Jaime Jaquez Jr. as one of the best rookies in the NBA being one of the leaders of that squad. So, before we move on to the next segment, I do want to bring up, since we are talking SGA in this segment, and Chet Holmgren. Shea Gildress-Alexander won December Player of the Month for the Western Conference, and Chet Holmgren won December Rookie of the Month in the Western Conference. So congratulations to those two players. I would have thought Luka Doncic had a shot at December play of the month. However, you can't deny that SGA did lead the Thunder to a 10-3 record in the month. And that, that is outstanding in and of itself. They're still one of the top two or three teams in the West. So shout out to those guys. They've been playing outstanding this season. And we're just looking forward to what's coming next. Now... In the third segment, we're going to transition and talk about the all-star results for round one. They haven't been finalized, but round one got released earlier today. And we'll take a look at the upcoming matchups across the NBA. Let's talk about the all-star voting results for round one they were released at noon on January 4th so as i pull them up on the western conference front court we have leading the way lebron james and in the eastern conference giannis antetokounmpo those two lead all players giannis at 1 lebron at 2 so in the western front court we have lebron james kevin durant nikola jokic Anthony Davis, Kawhi Leonard, Paul George, Alperen Sengun, Victor Wembanyama, Chet Holmgren, and Carl Anthony Towns. Then for the guards, Luka Doncic leads the way, followed by Stephen Curry, Shea Gilgis-Alexander, James Harden, Kyrie Irving, Anthony Edwards, Ja Morant, De'Aaron Fox, Clay Thompson, and Austin Reeves. Then in the Eastern Conference frontcourt... As I said, Giannis Antetokounmpo leads the way. Joel Embiid is right behind him. Then Jason Tatum, Jimmy Butler, Jalen Brown, Bam Adebayo, Mikhail Bridges, Kristaps Porzingis, Kyle Kuzma, and Paolo Bencaro. And then the Eastern Guards, Tyrese Halliburton leads the way, followed by Damian Lillard, Trey Young, Donovan Mitchell, Tyrese Maxey, Jalen Brunson, LaMelo Ball, who's still hurt right now. Uh, Derek White, DeMar DeRozan, and Drew Holiday. All right, so the fans are only able to vote for top five. They don't get to vote all, for all 12, but they account for 50% of the vote for the starters, and then NBA media gets 25%, and then the NBA players get another 25% of that share of the vote. So, continue voting on NBA.com. Obviously, the NBA did not ask me to, to say this, but that is the return of the first fan ballot, I guess. Round two will be released on January 11th, according to the NBA. And as we get closer to the deadline of voting, we will find out who ends up getting these coveted spots. So... Just keep voting, all right? Some news around sports broadcasting. ESPN has reached an eight-year, $920 million deal with NCAA Women's Basketball. So, Women's Basketball is alive and well. That that agreement is going to continue. It has been. Those tournaments have been on ESPN and ABC. So, nothing is going to change on that side of basketball. It's just another update to you know, let the public know, okay, this is where that deal is valued at. Now, next week, we will recap week 11. As we do every week, we'll do this great recap. And then we're going to try to look at what's coming up after that. So before we go, let's talk about the Dallas Cowboys. Briefly, they defeated Detroit. And next, they visit the Commanders. There's a lot of talk about how the two-point conversion that didn't end up happening altered the game, although there are even more fans, especially on the Cowboys' side, talking about a phantom tripping call that went on Hendershot instead of Aiden Hutchinson that allowed Detroit to have the ball in the first place. Even if that were let go, I think Shannon Sharp said it best on his nightcap podcast with Chad Ochocinco. Even if the refs knew, even if Brad Allen knew that Taylor Decker was eligible. The way that the Detroit Lions lined up, there was a receiver covering Decker, and therefore that made the formation Illegal. And so if it were illegal, a flag was supposed to be thrown of illegal formation as well as illegal touching. However, they only threw a flag for illegal touching. Now, this is what Sharp said. So when you're a player, if you're thinking, okay, if you never threw the flag for illegal formation and you only threw the flag for illegal touching, well, then I can only make you stand on what you called and that was illegal touching and there, now there's this whole fiasco with how do we report to referees who aren't even paying attention to us because, I mean, let's be honest, Brad Allen did not pay attention to Taylor Decker as he was trying to say I'm eligible because you got three linemen trying to deceive the defense, and they ended up deceiving Brad Allen. I feel bad for whichever team has to deal with that crew in Week 18 because um, that's not going to be fun especially if it's an important game. But word is that crew is not going to be refereeing a playoff game, which we don't need a situation like Raiders-Bengals from a a few years back. Anyway, for the Cowboys, what this means is that they have the two seed if they can beat Washington. If they lose, it's all on the Philadelphia Eagles to lose to the New York Giants. Why would we want to put it in the New York Giants' hands? That's beyond me. They've already they've already let us down a couple of times. Not only in years past, but when they've played us for a division title. So the best thing for the Cowboys to do is to just take care of business. Beat the commanders. Let it all be done. Get the two seed. Play whoever's at seven, whether it's Green Bay, whether it's the Rams, whether it's who knows who's going to, Seattle, who knows who's going to fill in that spot. But that's the week 18 objective for the Dallas Cowboys. Now, let's talk about this NBA schedule. As of recording, there are only two games happening on Thursday, January 4th. That's the Milwaukee Bucks and the San Antonio Spurs. Giannis Antetokounmpo against Victor Wembanyama, 7.30 p.m. Eastern, 6.30 p.m. Central on TNT. By the time you are listening or watching this show, that game will have already been final. Following that game, the Denver Nuggets and the Golden State Warriors are facing off at 10 p.m. Eastern, 9 p.m. Central on TNT. If if you end up listening to this on Friday, yes, that game will also be final. However, on Friday, January 5th, the New York Knicks and the Philadelphia 76ers play at 7.30 p.m. Eastern, 6.30 p.m. Central on ESPN. And then the Grizzlies and the Lakers will play at 10 p.m. Eastern, 9 p.m. Central on ESPN. And so watching Jalen Brunson against Joel Embiid, Julius Randle, Tyrese Maxey, I mean, that's going to be a fun matchup. And then, of course, Ja Morant against LeBron James. The Lakers are in trouble offensively right now. So I I don't know if they'll get this one, even if it's at home. Across local television... Friday, January 5th, the LA Clippers will visit the New Orleans Pelicans at 8-7 Central on Bally Sports SoCal and Bally Sports New Orleans. And the Portland Trailblazers will play the second of two games against against the Mavericks at 8:30, 7:30 Central on Root Sports and Bally Sports Southwest. And then on Sunday, January 7th, the New Orleans Pelicans will play the Sacramento Kings at 6-5 Central on Bally Sports New Orleans and NBC Sports California. And then the Minnesota Timberwolves will play the Dallas Mavericks 7.30, 6.30 Central on Valley Sports North and Valley Sports Southwest. So thank you for listening and watching through 2023 and into 2024. Have a great Week 18. I hope all of you had a Happy New Year as well. And I will see you next week. That does it for me. This has been The Control Room. I'm your host, Esrael Johannes, signing off.